Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Off Script with Pastor Jared. I'm glad to be here this week and talking about these misquoted verses, these misunderstood verses. So uh, we're going to continue in this little mini-series for the Off Script episodes. And uh, this week is Matthew 18, 20. Uh, often quoted as where two or three are gathered. That's the episode title, episode 11. Uh, so let me go ahead and quote the verse right out front for you. Uh, this is from Matthew eighteen twenty. It says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, this verse I'm certain you have heard quoted. And um, when it's misquoted, it's not one that gets you angry. You know, this is not one that you hear and it's, someone says it and it just starts boiling your blood, you know, <laughs> it's not one of those verses that's abused by the prosperity gospel charlatans, you know, to con a uh, wheelchair bound believer out of their money. Um, this verse really, usually every time I've heard it has been quoted to deal with, let's say to encourage a poorly attended church event. Okay. We've all been there, right? We've all been, um, at the prayer meeting where, you know, your church may have one, two, three hundred people, but the prayer meeting has five or ten. And, you know, and you're kind of feeling down on yourself and you're looking around like, man, where is everybody? You know, and you've got that feeling of just needing a little bit of encouragement and somebody just puts it out there. Hey, guys, where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. And it's just like, you know, yeah, that's right. God is with us. And you know what? When someone says that, I don't, I don't get upset. I don't correct them on the spot and say, hey, 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 that's not technically. No, I, I don't do that. Um, when you've got five people at your church who are the most dedicated servants and someone tries to bring an encouragement and it's just off a little bit, like, just let it go, guys. This is not the one. This this verse is not the one to sling the uh, fire and brimstone upon somebody for getting it wrong. Um, you know, because we've we've had some verses so far where people have just been way off. You know, like last week we talked about when someone just says the you know, money's the root of all evil. Well, that's completely wrong. Like that changes the whole meaning. Or when someone says, hey, God will never give you more than you can handle. We did that the week before. It's like, that's completely wrong. You just made that up. This one is basically true, but it's just, it's just out of context a little bit. And that's what I want to show you. Okay. So what's the problem? What's the problem with this passage? Well, it starts when you slow down and ask the question, um, all right, you're saying two or three gathered equals Jesus with us. Okay, well, slow down and ask the question, well, then is Jesus with me when I'm alone, when I pray alone? Is Jesus with me when I go through hardship, suffer alone, when I worship in my car alone and I'm singing to Jesus and I'm singing to God and uh, when I read my Bible by myself, all by my lonesome, is he there? Is he with me? Is his presence with me? Or do I need two or three people to show up with me in order to get Jesus to show up? In other words, is, is there like a, uh, a quorum that I've got to have? Two or three makes Jesus show up. Now, I don't think any of us believe that, all right? So I'm kind of building a straw man, but you can see where that 
conclusion could lead you if you just isolated the text where two or three are gathered. If you just said where two or three are gathered, then I'm with you. Well, you could you could understand why somebody could say we need two or three to get him with us. All right. Now, uh, that's not true. Um, and, and that's all I, I want to start unwinding for you today. What does it mean then? What does it mean? Okay. If it doesn't mean you need two or three to get Jesus to show up. Well, what does it mean? Well, again, I I hope you've taken away something from this series in that the context is extremely important. And in this case, you don't need to read much. It's just a few verses up will really help you in this. So the context of this verse can be figured out from just reading the five verses of Matthew 18, 15 through 20. All right. If you just reverse up to 15, um, you can really learn what this is about. And some people call this the, the church discipline passage. Um, it's the discussion of how to restore a sinner. All right. So a sinner wanders away and they, and they get involved in sin and they're, they're a professing Christian. And there's a process outlined in scripture of what to do about that, how to get them back uh, in fellowship with the Lord or, and to get them to repent. That's what this verse is in the setting of. Okay, so let me read it for you. I'm not going to do a deep dive on this, guys. I'm just going to get you your context, all right? So let me explain a little bit what this is. Verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. All right, so that's step one here. If someone sins, you, you go to them directly. Don't blow it up. Don't make a big fuss. Don't put it on Facebook. Don't go tell everybody in gossip. You go and tell them one-on-one and, and show them scripturally their sin. That's what Jesus says. And if they repent, if they say, you know what, Jared, you're right. That was a, that was a solid point. I'm off. I'm out of bounds. I've sinned. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of that. I'm going to repent. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. If that happens, you've gained your brother. Great. Awesome. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, so that that happens in life sometimes. People, you tell them scripturally where they've sinned, and they say, you know, some version of uh, (laughs) you can can take that and uh, whatever. (laughs) If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so if that person, if your friend, if your brother does not listen to your original one on one challenge to repent, you come back with one or two with you. All right. So go get. I always, you know, grab a a strong brother in Christ, grab a strong sister in Christ, grab grab a deacon from your church, uh, an elder, a pastor, if necessary, Um, if you can, if you have somebody you know who is has a lot of credibility as a person, they're they're one of those uh, sound people in your life. You go grab them and bring them. Someone that this offender uh, respects would be great. Someone they look up to. Go grab that person, bring them with you, and show them again the same thing, and and show them how they've sinned. Verse seventeen says, if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church. Okay, so now we've amped it up. If someone 
has heard from two or three brothers in Christ, now their second time hearing this, and they've said, no, not going to repent. No, no, no. They've said that. Well, your, your only recourse left, Jesus says, is to then inform the church. So that could be when you go get your pastor involved, when you go get your elders involved, when you go uh, get sort of whatever governing body your church uses, um, you know, we're, we're Baptists here. And so uh, this might be something that has to un- unfortunately go to a business meeting, uh, as we call it, to go to um, a public situation. And you've got an opportunity to turn back from your sin. And, say, and uh, if not, well, what happens? It says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, again, every church is a little different, but for a Baptist church, typically what this is going to mean is the revocation of your church membership, uh, because to us, membership signifies believing. If you're a member, you're supposed to also be a Christian, a baptized Christian. So it, we can't, you know, we we can't take your salvation away, but, you know, but what we can do is say, we think you're not saved, Based upon your hardness of heart, based upon your lack, your unwillingness to repent, uh, it's our best judgment based on Scripture, based on um, a multitude of witnesses, uh, first one, then two or three, then the body, uh, all evidence suggests that you're not walking with Christ, that your heart is hardened toward repentance, and because of that, you're an unbeliever. We, we cannot in good conscience say that your life testifies to the fruits of the Spirit because you refuse repentance in this obvious situation, okay? So um, you would revoke that person's church membership, and you would basically treat them like a lost person in your life. The same way, you wouldn't treat them like a brother anymore. You wouldn't say, hey, Brother Smith, you know, hey, Brother Joe. You don't, you don't say that anymore. You treat them as if they're an unbeliever, all right? Now, that's uncomfortable. Just... I'm not some theologian just reciting theory to you, all right? I'm telling you right now, that's not fun, and that's not comfortable, and there's a reason why churches really, by and large, don't do that. If you're at a church that does that, you're unique. Just want you to know that, okay? But that's the process that Jesus gives of how a sinner is restored to the body. Um, Or, if yeah, right, because they could be restored. A lot of times we think it has to go to the end like that, and it doesn't. A lot of times people just repent of their sin and say, yay. A lot of times people get frustrated and mad, and they remove themselves from your church membership. They they get mad, and they say, how dare you, you know, call me to repentance? And they say, well, I'm going to go to some church where they don't call you to repent, and then they leave. That happens too. Um, or this is someone who refuses the whole time, and they want to stick around, and they make you go through the process, and you have to say, we believe you're unrepentant. Okay, so in this process, here's where we're, we're going to draw it back to our um, easy, our, our, our verse. If we get back to verse 16, it says, take two or three with you, all right? Take one or two with you, excuse me. It says, take one or two with you when you go to engage. So that's step two. In step two of the process, take one or two with you as engage as you engage this question of uh, repentance with your brother. All right? So if you take two, uh, one or two with you, how many is that? Two or three, right? Okay. So if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that that phrase, two or three witnesses, is not only used here in Matthew. 
Uh, it's actually a pretty common phrase. I didn't have to do a lot of work to find it. Um, why would there be two or three witnesses used throughout the Bible? Well, this was a this started as a Jewish thing uh, in the law of Moses, and it was used as a phrase to talk about credibility, uh, a reliable witness when you're trying to charge somebody with something. Okay, so it's kind of like a justice system thing. When you're going to charge somebody that they've done wrong, uh, you can't just be all by your lonesome and get somebody in trouble. You have to have some witnesses to it, okay? Um, so let me give you some verses where this comes up. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Here it is. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Again, Deuteronomy 17, 6 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses is the one uh, who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. All right, so you can't just, you can't just go up and say, you know, I saw this person do X, Y, Z, or, uh, and they need to die for it. I mean, that, that's a recipe for wrongful um, capital punishment, someone being put to death for something they didn't do. So in the Old Testament, you could not just singularly make a claim against somebody and have them put to death. There had to be some kind of trail of at least two or three witnesses to be able to have such a heavy charge brought against somebody. Okay, Um, You can't just, by your lonesome, ruin somebody's life or have somebody killed. That that can't be the way that it is, and that was never how it was in the Old Testament. First uh, Timothy five nineteen, New Testament says, Paul writes, "Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses." So, you really can't even in Paul's mind bring down your pastor with just a singular person that doesn't like him, just because one person, you know, think wants to get their pastor removed and put somebody else in. You can't do it with just one. You got to have two or three witnesses, a proven track record of failure, of moral failure, or the, you know, if someone's just a terrible person, you, you can't just have one person notice it. It's got to be at least two or three. And again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 13, 1, uh, he says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so um, what about Jesus? Does Jesus ever say this? Well, in fact, he does. John 8, 17, Jesus says to the Pharisees, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So even Jesus uses this against the Pharisees when they're saying, you're you're claiming to be the Messiah, uh, and, you know, we don't believe you. Well, Jesus, he kind of, it's a little tongue in cheek the way he employs it. He says, well, I've, I've got my two witnesses here. I'm my, I'm my own witness and the father is my other witness. And he's a pretty good witness, isn't he? So we got two. So it's clear that Jesus is using this and is familiar with this. So that makes a lot of sense in Matthew 18 that he uses it again. So this is a clearly established biblical precedent that one person cannot just make something up and ruin someone else's life. And it makes complete sense that the context would carry through in a discussion on church discipline where you're bringing someone's sin to light to them and potentially to the whole church. Okay, so that's a charge. It's a lot like those other examples. So the reminder really is to uh, those doing the hard work 
of restoration, restoring a sinner to Christ. Uh, That's what this two or three verse is actually about, that when two or three of them are going to bring that charge against their brother in love, that Jesus is with them in that, and he is supporting them in that, that they're not alone in that uncomfortable situation, and that Jesus endorses this practice of restoring sinners to uh, reconciling them to him. So, in conclusion, is it true that when we gather for worship, Jesus is with us? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, But that was always true. That was never in question. That was never on the table. Uh, Jesus is is with us, whether we worship uh, with others, two or three, four, five, a hundred, a thousand, or when we worship alone, Jesus is with us. Um, But when you bring a charge against a brother in sin, the weight of God has always required two or three witnesses to establish a charge against someone. And I believe that's what Jesus was referring to here in Matthew 18, that when you go with your two or three and you're doing that heavy lifting of discipline and and reconciliation and restoration, that he's reminding you in that hard work, I'm with you even then. Okay. So, that's what I believe this text is about. Um, and again, I don't go and make a crusade out of this and correct sweet little old ladies who are trying to encourage their pastor that um, just because we had a, a bad attendance day at church, <laughs> that things are okay. That's not the time, guys. That is not the time. Um, but I do want you to know what this verse means in complete context. That's what this series is all about. So I hope you'll be blessed by this and uh, to have a good grasp on what this Matthew 18 uh, chunk of five or six verses is really about. All right. So I hope that you'll join us again this Sunday morning. Uh, our next planned text this Sunday is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. for I know the plans I have for you. It's coming, so I hope that you guys are with us this Sunday morning uh, at Kirby Woods Baptist Church, and if you're listening from afar, join a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church and stick to them like glue in these hard times. God bless. Have a great day.